Support for WERU comes from the Abbey Museum, Maine's first Smithsonian affiliate, founded in 1928 at Sir Dimon Spring in Acadia National Park, and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. It's just a few minutes before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Wapanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Webinaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webinaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, our guest is, is Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation. And our topic for discussion uh, will be the latest developments in tribal-state relations. Uh, including the permanent withdrawal of our legislative representatives. Uh, good morning, uh, Chief Francis. Good morning, and thank you for having me again. Yeah, I think you've become a regular on the show <laughs> here. <laughs> Be yeah. a co-host. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. <laughs> yeah, we could do that. Um, so, lots of it, lots has been happening uh, on various levels. So um, not quite sure where to begin. I mean, we could start with uh, the, some of the situations we've had with uh, the fisheries and with the river and that sort of thing. So um, if you could just sort of up, bring us up to date on some of those. And sure. Um, so I think back in, just to back up to kind of, the most recent flurry of events, I think the uh, you can go back to the rescinding of the executive order, um, where in 2011, um, as most people know, the governor uh, put an executive order in place that, that basically recognized the tribes as, as sovereigns and uh, and also um, you know laid out the groundwork for how the government to government relationship was going to work, how it was going to be respected and. Um, thought it was a really, really good document, and um, and then recently, you know, the rescinding of that document and a new executive order that uh, doesn't recognize any of those things. It basically um, calls the tribes, their lands, resources, and people uh, subjects of the state and state courts, and even those lands held in trust um, by the federal government, which is, you know, assuming a lot of authority, but. It, uh, you know, I think it was kind of eye-opening for the tribes. You know, executive orders in and by themselves don't uh, mean a whole lot at the end of the day. They're they're administrative acts, and they're they're just basically putting on paper how um, leaders feel and and what they want to see in in an approach. But, you know, this felt like um, coupled with real evidence and real issues uh, behind it that – there was just a full court kind of press going on from from state government in terms of making sure that uh, we understood kind of where our place was. And so for us, it, it just became really um, confusing as to why this was happening, but also 
uh, very concerning, and we had to really focus at that point on ramping up our approach and where we were going and, and how we were going to do that as tribal people in, in a self-determining type of way. Right. Okay, so let's let's just jump in here with this. Uh, the first executive order was uh, August 26, 2011, and uh, there's a lot of whereases. There's one, two, three, four, five, about five whereases in the executive order. Um, but uh, there were some things, some actions that... Uh, are written in the executive order, and uh, those actions are. Uh, I just want to explain this because, you know, it really gave the tribes a sense of hope that finally, the uh, state government was really going to listen and communicate with us. So, it says now. Therefore, I, Paul LePage, Governor of the State of Maine, hereby order as follows: Number one, policy that recognizes the relationship among sovereigns that exist between the state of Maine and Maine's native tribes. Uh, that was A. B, promotes effective two-way communication between the state and the tribes. C, enables the tribes to provide meaningful and timely input. Let me repeat that. Meaningful and timely input into the development of legislation rules, and policies proposed by the state agency on matters that significantly or uniquely affect those tribes. Now, remember, this is in August uh, 2011. Establishes a method for notifying employees of the state agency of the provisions of this executive order and the policy that the state agency adopts pursuant to the section and, and E, encourages similar communication efforts by the tribes. And two, every department and agency of state government shall designate a tribal liaison to facilitate effective communication between the state and the tribes. Number three, the duties of the tribal liaison shall include, it was pretty, pretty uh, specific, shall include A, establishment of a communications plan to facilitate information sharing between state agency and tribal government. B, creating and adopting standard operating procedures to engage tribal governments at the earliest possible juncture of the development of any legislation, rules, policies proposed by the state agency on matters that significantly or uniquely affect the tribes. C, advising the chief executive of the state agency of issues of concern to the tribes and the impact on the tribes of proposed legislation, rules, and policy. And that's important. Impact, you know, this, these proposed uh, rules and policies. And D, other such duties as the Department of Agency may require. Well, that's pretty detailed, isn't it? It is. And so, that's yeah, so tell me, how, how was that implemented? Well, um, I'll just <laughs> tell you how it was implemented by one year later receiving a, a letter from the Attorney General's office saying that we no longer had rights to our territory and that our sustenance fishery was basically non-existence, uh, non-existent. Um, not even a year later have legislation moving through the Maine legislature to basically wipe out saltwater fishing rights for the Maine tribes. Um, no consultation on any of those things. Uh, none of that step-by-step um, -step process that's laid out was followed. Um, I still don't know who 
with those tribal liaisons in most of the state departments. Um, so I think from a um, kind of practical standpoint, it really never was working anyway, but it... Um, yeah, so just empty rhetoric with mm-hmm. just a bunch of promises that really never, ever was even initially implemented. But, you know, what's concerning about it is that, you know, um, of this mindset, and we know as tribal people, you know, our our inherent sovereignty, where it comes from, and why we have it, all of those things. But um, when a state governor can take the position in an attorney general, and to be fair, it's not just his office, I mean... And so I think that um, when they can take the position that today, you know, like in 1998, okay, we're going to put legislation in and we're going to approve that to recognize the Passamaquoddy saltwater fishing rights. And then in 2010, legislate to say when you don't have those rights anymore. Um, In 1988, to say the Penobscots have a sustenance fishery within the Penobscot River. Um, 2012, no, you don't. So it's... It's this mindset that uh, your sovereignty is for us to give to you and take away, depending on what the environment is, and um, and we're just not going to live that way anymore. So, you know, I get questions of the uh, nature of, you know, what what is sovereignty? What's a, what is sovereignty? Sovereignty is the right of a people that um, to determine their own future, and it's uh, a self-governing right. It's a self-determination right, and that's... Uh, based on the inherent fact that we've always been here and that we've had structured governments of political entities, uh, political entities. We've had government-to-government relationships with other tribes for thousands of years. We're, um, again, in our territory, and it's a sovereignty uh, by fact. It's not by law or it's not by the governor giving it to us. And so, um, you know, people talk about all this these legal languages all the time around sovereignty and the really um nobody can give and take that away from you i mean it's it's just unless you know like i said unless they've turned into the creator i don't know how that happens so um but what they can do is restrict your independence and um and that's really what's uh, been happening to the main tribes for a very very long time right to, and you know and and all of the, this in, in 2011 looked very, very promising with all of these empty, empty things that were supposed to be done. And then came, what was it, the EPA decision? or a, mm-hmm. Tell us about that one. Well, see, so, so <clears throat> over the last couple of years, the, the tribes have, uh, and our tribe in particular, has, has worked really hard to b- build our federal relationship and make sure that um, we understand and, and everyone understands that um, we're not just going to accept this mindset that um, we're to be parented by the state of Maine. We have a much larger relationship. We're, we have a much larger status. And so, um, you know, we've started to make headway and we've started to really um, educate members of Congress, uh, multiple agencies in, in federal Indian law and federal Indian approaches and congressional approaches have evolved. The only place not evolving is here. And so when you, um, when we see all this and and when people are educated, they're appalled by it. And so now that the federal agencies and and the federal government and um, in, in the United States Congress are really looking at these issues in detail 
you know, especially around things like fishing rights and, and water rights and water quality. Um, they're, again, they're getting involved because they have a trust fiduciary responsibility to the tribes of Maine. And I think leading up to this rescinding of the executive order, the EPA decision that recognized a different water quality standard within tribal waters um, just kind of drove them nuts down there. And, you know, this is what we get, this retaliatory document that basically says, we don't care what they say. We don't care what you think you are. This is what you're going to be under, um, in our opinion. So, um, and again, we got this by an email on a Saturday morning and no consultation, no communication. And uh, the worst thing about the rescinding of the executive order is he blames tribal people for uh, the breakdown in this relationship, which I, I think is a stretch. Yeah. just Let, let me just read what he says here. He just says, uh, um, whereas the relationship between the state of Maine and the individual tribes is a relationship between equals, each with its own set of responsibilities. Whereas all tribe members, Indian nations and tribes and bands of Indians in the state and any lands or other natural resources owned by them or held in trust for them are subject to the laws of the state and to the civil and criminal jurisdiction of the courts of the state to the same extent as any other person or lands or other natural resources therein. Whereas, and here's the zinger, previous efforts by the governor on behalf of the state of Maine to promote collaboration, and we know how those efforts went, uh, and communication with the tribes, which was zero, uh, tribes have proved to be unproductive because the state... Unproductive because the state of Maine's interests have not been respected uh, in the ongoing relationship between sovereigns. So it hasn't been productive because we haven't recognized Maine's state of Maine's mm-hmm. interest. And I kind of have to chuckle at that one because their interest is basically to eradicate us. <laughs> well, you know, that's the, you know, it, to point to the state's interest as not being respected. I mean, the the reality is, is that Go ahead and be sovereign. Go up in your territories and play around with your governments, but don't make any decisions we don't agree with. And if you do, you know, our interest is not being respected. A sovereign-to-sovereign relationship is always going to have interests on both sides. We have to commit to um, respecting that and also finding a way to um, mitigate those concerns and those interests um, so that everybody kind of can get to a place where they feel good about the product. And that's what sovereigns should be doing. And it should be diplomacy and there should be a whole host of things. But to simply say our interests aren't being respected, so um, we're going to take our ball and go home, um, I think is um, it's not only infantile, it's just... Uh, it, it was destructive. I mean, we're set back right now um, 40 years in this relationship and 200 years in some ways when we start talking about the legislative action so uh, or, or our um, legislative representatives. So I think, um, you know, it was yeah. ill-advised, whoever um, advised him to, to put this out because there's really nothing productive could come of it. Yeah, kind of. When, when we're saying these things, I mean, he's 
he's sort of, like you said, taken his ball and, and gone home. And yet um, we get comments that we've done the same thing when it mm-hmm. comes to our representatives uh, leaving the legislature. Uh, but I want to hold off on that discussion. Uh, what I want to do next is to talk about uh, some of the... the some of the bills that we've put in um, in this session, mm-hmm. and uh, I think the uh, one one of the first ones we we uh, we've uh, testified to was the uh, LD two thirty nine was a proposal to create a permanent Wabanaki law enforcement seat on the board of the Maine Criminal Justice Academy. Want to talk to us about that one? Sure. <laughs> um, you know we're the only law enforcement entity. Um, not represented on that board. We are forced to go through training there. Um, Our law enforcement people are by agreement in the Settlement Act. So we have to um, have the same training as any other municipal officer. And so it would only make sense to have a Wabanaki voice on that board uh, to focus on understanding the diversity of Native communities, the challenges on Native communities. Many of our communities are in border towns and and dealing with um, high rates of prescription drug abuse and and a whole host of things that are not just appearing on the reservation. Um, So all of this stuff is extremely, extremely important. But again, they got into a position, they fought us two years in a row on getting a seat there, and um, just do not want to allow it for whatever reason. And I think it's it's about, um, again, it's really indicative of um, the tribes trying to have a seat at the table and continuously being pushed away because they don't want um, that tribal position in setting policy. Right. And I understand there, there are seven seats, 17, I'm sorry, 17 seats on that on that board. And not one of them is a person of color, let alone a, a tribal person. Um, so, you know, that in itself needs to be changed. You know, exactly. And, you know, Maine is becoming more diversified. It's uh, becoming more understanding. I mean, even if you're not a person of color, you, you know, people, what we're finding is that a lot of Maine citizens want to learn. They want to understand what the communities are facing and and how they can help and um, and I think, you know, with everything we're seeing nationally around law enforcement with, you know, um, the racial tensions we're seeing in other cities, there's a perception out there that um, police officers are, uh, you know, bad people. And 99% of them are not. They go to work. They do their job. They're credible. They have integrity. And I think, um, you know, these issues in minority communities are are escalating, and I think that voice is extremely important right now. Yeah, yeah, and I and I agree, and I I really, it's beyond my <laughs> comprehension that there's mm-hmm. no no representation on that board. So okay, so that one got uh, killed. The second one, uh, LD two sixty seven, was a proposal to implement the recommendations of the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mm-hmm. And so that bill, um, obviously, everybody knows that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was uh, jointly done with the state and the tribes. Uh, recently, have released their findings and um, have come up with a whole host of recommendations to ensure that the relationship improves, but also that we don't repeat past mistakes. 
respecting tribal sovereignty was the number one recommendation on that. And um, and this wasn't us saying it. You know, the Secretary of State sits on this commission. And so, um, so those recommendations came out. It's one of the bills the governor has vowed not to support. Yeah, to, to veto. Right. Uh, evidently, that bill... Uh, and, the, and I guess they hadn't had the uh, recommendations uh, written when this was in front of committee. So one of the things the committee uh, decided to do was hold it um, until they received the recommendations and probably bring it into next session to mm-hmm. look at it. Uh, so the uh, the next one is uh, 268. A proposal to give tribal courts jurisdiction over cases involving Indian women who are physically abused by non-Indian men. Yeah, this one here um, drives me absolutely crazy. I think that um, when you have an on-the-ground condition of abuse on women at this level within Maine's borders, everybody should be ashamed of that. And we need to find solutions. And what the Department of Justice has said is that there's no more productive of an approach than the first responders. And the first responders are tribal governments, tribal courts. And so um, we need to be able to comprehensively protect our women. And this was a concurrent situation. There was no preemption of state jurisdiction. Um, The state themselves could try these cases. There's no double jeopardy. Um, But at Penobscot, you know, we have these same statistics. About 85% of the time, our women are being offended against by um, by non-Indians. And, you know, when you have that condition, it's important that you have the tools to deal with it. And I think that um, this was a real shame that got caught up again in a control struggle between the Attorney General's office and the tribes. And in the end, they, um, they chose to... Uh, to not support it. So I think um, the bill's been carried over. Um, I This is another one of those bills that the governor has vowed not to support, and it's all over um, jurisdiction. And so, so I think that um, we're getting so entrenched in this battle and who can win and who can't that we're losing sight that there are real people out there beside, um, behind this. So so again, those offender rates are horrific. Indian women and Indian people in general, uh, through multiple Department of Justice studies, show that we are almost 10 times more likely to be assaulted by another race than any other group of people in the country. So so when you have this stuff going on, you know, you have this mindset here that, no, that's not happening here. You know, we those things don't happen in Maine. Well, they're happening, and um, and we have the cases to prove it. We have the lack of prosecution to prove that victims are not getting their day in court, that these issues are not being solved. And, um, yeah, that one really bothers me a lot because it's uh, a huge piece of our community, our women in a matriarchal society. We have to figure out ways to um, to protect that, and, and we have the tools to do And I will just say, you know, we have a very committed court to this issue we have very knowledgeable people. Our chief judge does the implementation training throughout Indian country. Um, he's hired by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And um, 
so we're we're moving forward to implement uh, whatever we have available to us to cure this. And if people want to hold us accountable and and uh, and call us the bad guys for doing that, and so be it. But it's the it's the right thing for us to be doing. I mean, the ironic thing about it is, I I think that the uh, the attorney general had some concerns about the ability mm-hmm. of the court to uh, Im- implement this this law. Uh, and I find that ludicrous, you know, given the fact that uh, our attorneys and our, our judges are all trained in, in uh, you know, they have their law degrees. Oh, absolutely. The vow is very clear on the constitutional protections. You have to have a law-trained judge. You have to have all of that. I mean, we've had, we have judges on the main Supreme Court that have started in our court. We have um, a community that has held jury trials, very responsible. You have to find diversity on that jury under the VAWA. Um, it's not just Indians, but anyone living in your community can be on that jury pool. And it, I had a United States senator say it to me last week. Um, well, what, what about a non-Indian that's getting tried in an Indian court? Is that really fair to not have a jury of his peers? And, you know, for a couple hundred years... Uh, you know, welcome <laughs> to our world. To us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I do think it would be yeah. extremely fair. I mean, people are not, uh, you know, this isn't about the big payback. It's about making sure we're addressing a condition. And um, in the United States, Congress uh, was really, really good at uh, going through the evidence, making sure states had input. And I mean, this bill didn't just happen overnight. A lot of people fought for a very, very long time for that bill. And, uh, and, you know, again, everything was considered. There's a lot of state rights within that bill. So, so again, it's just ridiculous. So, yeah. So the majority of Indian country are more, well, I was at 99% of Indian country has this now and Mm -hmm. we don't. Well, if, uh, yeah, you know, those tribes that are set up structurally to deal with it can move forward. And, um, and we're, we're fully capable of it. We're, you know, we haven't been presented with a case recently. Um, but we will. It'll be a matter of time, and we'll figure out how we'll move forward with that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next one was uh, LD-893, requiring the state to print the section of the state constitution outlining Maine's obligations toward Indian tribes under a 1794 treaty with Massachusetts. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting bill. It's, um, you know, as a condition for becoming a state, the um, state of Maine had to acknowledge the responsibilities to Indian people here. Uh, that treaty uh, outlines those responsibilities because um, Maine takes the position that life began in 1980 for everybody and that those treaties don't exist and they're not real and or um, they're not important. And so they have not acknowledged those treaties in any publications of the Constitution or or any way publicly for for a very very long time, and um, what that bill is saying is you got to acknowledge these treaties, you got to acknowledge these responsibilities, and you can't just act like that. The history doesn't exist. Yeah, I think in the uh, in the law, it ju- it says in section section seven, original sections one and two of Article Ten, not to be printed, and it says. Uh, uh, sections 1 and 2 and 5 of Article uh, 10 of the Constitution shall hereafter be omitted in any printed copies thereof, 
prefixed to the laws of the state, but this shall not impair the validity of the act. So you can't print them, but they're still uh, in force under those sections, and said section 5 shall remain in full force as part of the Constitution according to the stipulations of said section with the same effect as if uh, contained in said printed copies. But, you know, it's like there's <laughs> something in, a, in effect here in the, in the Constitution that the general public can't get to or they can't read. Right, and that's, and that's the thing, and that's the big reason in my understanding for the foundation of that bill is, you know, how do Maine citizens get educated about the history of the state if we don't acknowledge that past, a huge, huge piece of, uh, of Maine's history? And, and how do we move forward with these conversations well, with everyone understanding that history and the importance of it and, and why, you know, people look at the issues in a box and they say, you know, why are these tribes want special treatment here? Why do they, and it's, it's much, much deeper than that. It's really not about a flexing of authority. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about um, an entire history we're trying to protect here. And what people don't realize a lot of times because they don't have this history is that um, systematically in a sliver at a time, the Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, Micmac, and Maliseet are being slowly exterminated from their territories. And, and when that happens, um, it's going to be a very, very bad day and sad day for this state because um, it's the proverbial, you know, fighting off your nose, bite your face, but it's... Um, well, yeah, I mean, what, and I don't quite understand. Is there any articles in the United States Constitution that are not allowed to be printed? I wouldn't the, think so. It's laughable. <laughs> you know, here we are in the state of Maine. We have a Maine Constitution, and some of those articles are not to be printed. You know, as a Maine citizen, and I am a Maine citizen, I'm concerned about that. And a lot of people are in in a lot of ways. And, and what Maine citizens are starting to ask us is, you know, or ask their own state leaders is, you know, who are you doing this on behalf of? Because you don't do it on behalf of me. I don't appreciate this behavior. And, you know, and I think it's going to, it's going to be a very dark time for tribal state relations right now. And it's going to be looked at um, throughout history as, as shameful. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the evidence is uh, it's being covered up, being hidden. I mean, <laughs> in the main constitution itself, that's, that's, pretty obvious um and so i guess right now what they're doing is uh it's in the house the bill is in the house it's um what did i say that was ld 893 and uh it's being held so that the attorney general's office can work some wording uh to uh, to change some of the wording that's that's what they're tabling it for so it should be interesting how that's how that comes out. Uh, and it's interesting that it's even in a bill. You know, why, why do we have to even have a bill to be able to read our own constitution? It's, uh, okay. okay, moving on. Uh, <laughs> uh, LD 1094, a proposal to recognize the governmental powers of the Passamaquoddy tribe in Penobscot Nation. 
proposal to recognize the governmental powers. That has to, I'm not sure what that has to do with, actually. I, I have it, not seen that, it's not. I, I saw it, but it's not to do with, oh, I think I know what it is. It has to do with the uh, the changing of the settlement, wording in the Settlement Act about municipality. Mm-hmm. I think that's what that is. To make it clear. So that bill is on the fast track to approval, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> that bill, I think, has been killed a long time ago. I don't think it made it out of committee. Um, so anyway, those are, was there any kind of, I know there are other bills and I. Yeah, they, you know, there were, um, I, mean, I think you hit on, on the core of them, but, you know, there were some gaming bills in and there were, oh, that's um, right. there were a few other things. And, you know, what the committee decided to do was uh, kill all those gaming proposals. And they came out with a committee bill that focuses on a bid process in certain locations for two additional casinos, I believe. So, um, so yeah, so the, but these bills here are very, very concerning because they were all on again, an email from the governor's office that uh, these are bills he will probably not support. So um, so I think it was six out of seven Indian bills or so that he won't support. And um, I forget what the one was that he would. But well, the one, the one he would support had to do with the, uh, the Micmacs. Oh, yeah, getting a seat in the legislature, right. and which they're... I understand they're no longer interested in, but, but I, um, but I think, um, you know, it's a, and and I'm glad you brought those up because it, it really lends to the year after year, as you know, experience in Augusta where, um, you know, kind of we're getting there, you know, maybe next year we can work through, you know, it's an incremental process. We, and so, you know, after a while we, we understood that we were just being, um, placated in a lot of ways and we're just trying to uh, keep everybody's powder dry while we were continuously being denied these opportunities you take the VAWA bill for example I mean these bills shouldn't these are just taken for granted in other states I mean you don't go get a state bill to implement a federal law exactly and so um so we're trying because the legislature is really the only mechanism to solidify the products in this government-to-government relationship. And and uh, so that's not been productive. You know, the attorney general's office, we know that history, uh, very unproductive. And now, you know, rearing its head in the executive branch in a very big way in the last three or four months. And, um, you know, a lot of litigation going on and a lot of contention around a lot of issues and, um, you know, I certainly, I've only, you know, been, a, been chief here for about 10 years now and, uh, been through some tough times, but this is the worst I've ever seen it. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I, like what you always, you're always talking about definition of insanity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, you start doing it. You did, we did it, started it in 1823. We started and we're still trying to, uh, to, uh, do the same things and find different results. So, you know, I'm I'm just always the optimist. I think sometimes, and uh, you know, have a very much an attitude of everything will be okay eventually. And and I just um, it's really really got to a place where I just felt like I was doing my people no service at all and um, participating in minimizing um, their status by 
continuously trying to, um, you know, square peg that round hole. And I think it's, um, it's a shame, but, um, cause I think there was some opportunities, but, um, we are where we are and, and, uh, we're working hard with our federal partners to overcome them. Right. So then that, that sort of, uh, brings me to, um, our, our decision, the Penobscot nation and the Passamaquoddy tribes, cause we can only speak from the, our perspective, mm-hmm. Penobscot nation perspective to withdraw our, and I mean permanently withdraw mm-hmm. our tribal representatives. Yeah, you know, what a kind of emotional day that was, and and you're filled with a lot of them. I mean, I think it was everything from extremely sad to um, exhilarating, and I think that because of how we got there, we didn't get there by just, you know, standing up one day and saying, this uh we're going to go throw a hissy fit and pull our representatives. It was a lot of process. And um, at Penobscot, you know, our people voted on this. We went to referendum on it at general meeting. Um, well, we took a general meeting vote. We have one every year. Right. And, and um, We had a public hearing on it, too. We so. had a public hearing. We, um, you know, we, we had a lot of internal conversation about it. You know, we just felt like we have to stop being the nation we say we are. And... These are elected people, and they're ambassadors for our tribes, and they, they exercise diplomacy for a nation. And so so we had to start acting that way. And, you know, sitting in a chair where um, they don't get to vote, you know, they, um, which, you know, I'm not sure that we should, but I, I think, um, you know, it's just demoralizing to them in a lot of ways, you know, to have to bring these issues forward on behalf of a nation and, and not um, be respected as such. So, and it it wasn't so much that you know there. I will just say that there are many good people in Augusta, and about sixty of them walked out with the representatives that day, and none of them knew that was coming. So, right. um, so we have tons of friends there. It just seems like uh, uh, it wasn't working. So after two hundred years, almost you know we well eighteen twenty two we started there and um, we have to uh, now we have to pull away and and regroup and figure out how we're going to address that relationship through those offices so is there any sort of um, progress in figuring out what we're going to do how we're going to address that yeah you know we talked um, a bunch since that that day and um, and you know our focus is to make sure that um, we're setting a joint tribal self-determination agenda in many areas. Uh, we'll be meeting again this week, and um, and we take those offices and we um, allow them to interact on a much different level. And they, you know, again, serve as ambassadors. They go, and um, when there's issues in Augusta, when there's issues in Washington, D.C., when there's issues um, with local governments, um, they'll play a huge role in that diplomacy. So... Um, so I think that um, we're starting to etch out what that's going to look like. Um, I think it will take a little time and a little feeling around to um, get get to exactly where we want to be there. But um, at the end of the day, um, they are going to be respected for the elected people they are and not, um, you know, placated to and minimized and all of those things. And um, this is really about a governmental approach on a much different level. Yeah, it's going to be um, 
It's going to be very different um, all the way around. Very, the perspectives are really, uh, it's new. Mm-hmm. It's new. It, it is. And, uh, you know, I've, um, I think that, uh, you know, I was, I was just extremely proud. I'm proud of, of how cohesive our tribes are right now. And, um, there's not a day goes by really where we're not touching base and, um, on a whole host of issues. And, and I think, uh, we're a lot stronger that way. And, you know, and for our people, our people really feel like there's hope, you know, they want to, and I'm a tribal member at the end of the day, and I'm not always going to be chief, um, but those are the people I'm going to follow. And I, I want them to have the ability to uh, self-govern in a totally comprehensive way that makes the best decisions for tribal people. And that's um, kind of where I am. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, too, and I, th- I found this really sort of symbolic. And I, I, I don't know. I, you know, Wayne, uh, Representative Mitchell, um, has not been uh, in the best of health. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, when, when they made, when they stood up and they made their, uh, departure speeches, um, you know, Wayne, of course he, he's, uh, well, I think he's my age. I don't know. He's fairly, he's an, he can be considered an elder or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he read the first part of the speech and I thought it was really great when he handed over to uh, Representative Dana, who was much, much younger. Uh, I, I'm just looking at this sort of <laughs> <laughs> symbolically. Right. And, and Representative Dana, with a very strong, healthy, strong voice, you know, reads the, reads the last part of it where he says, we can no longer participate in a system that fails to recognize the first people of this territory. Uh, and uh, to me, that was... Totally symbolic. It was like the the old pro, the old process that we've been doing for almost two hundred years has, was was gone, and the new, the strong and the new had had taken over. And I just kind of got chills listening to that, seeing that happen. Yeah, Representative Dana. Um, I guess I shouldn't call him that anymore, but uh, but the uh, but. You know, Matt came up to me after the, he came outside and he said, you know, what a great day to be, be here, huh? And I, I think that we're all extremely lucky to be where we are in this moment because I think it represents real change for the tribes. And I think that it represents a, a real future in a positive way. And I, and I, um, so, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was really exhilarating for us all and, and you know we did a an interview together after and uh and Matt said you know i'm just I'm just full of a whole lot of emotion today because you know uh, we were just all really proud to be in that moment, and I think that because it wasn't just pulling the representatives out it was it just represented a whole lot of other things and um I'm really proud of our people too for for their guidance through that whole thing and and really supporting that and I think uh, it was the right decision. Yeah, I do too. I, you know, it's, but it's taken us two hundred years to to come to that. Uh, but you know, and I, I can sort of understand. I can understand why non-native people would look at that and say, 
you know, you can't just turn your back and walk out. How, do you th- how are you going to fix things? How are things going to get any better? Mm-hmm. And that's the question I get. Well, uh, you know, and, you know, and I understand that. I mean, but I think people look at it as, uh, you know, they t- over a short period of time, right? It's like you have to stay engaged. You have to, and we'll engage in, in other ways. And it is, uh, but it's not going to be through, um, a dictated process, right? That forces us to participate in things that minimize us and, and minimizes the governmental status of the tribes. But um, we believe in diplomacy. We'll always believe in it. We've, uh, I believe it works when both sides are committed to it. Um, but until that commitment's there, you know, we have to really focus on what we're doing. I mean, we're going to, we're in the biggest lawsuit of our life right now over this river that we've lived in for 10,000 years and we can't get bogged down in this infantile fight with the state government about things that really uh, at the end of the day only help people. So we're going to focus on helping people and protecting ourselves because we have to, um, we have to recognize and we have recognized that if we don't, I mean, we're going to be left with nothing. And so it's almost like that process over time kind of lulls you to sleep a little bit. You're just, you're constantly communicating, you're constantly talking, you're constantly getting nothing done and you pick your head up and you've lost a whole lot of things. And so, um, so yeah, so I think we need to, um, fight for those things and we need to make sure that, um, we're on the right side of it. We're doing it sanely and we're, um, always staying on that moral high ground that we have with these issues. And I guess the other, uh, the other comments I hear, uh, and this might be a little bit touchy, I don't know, uh, it has to do with the fact that not all the tribal reps walked out. Mm-hmm. So we have, uh, there's one uh, that's left there. Right. So, um, you know, I'll just say that uh, I respect Chief Commander a lot, Um you know, I, ever since I've been here, she's been there, and we've done a lot of great things together. Um, politically, I can't speak for where they're at. Um, they made a choice not to do that, and um, we have to respect that. And I don't, you know, I wish they would would have been with us on it, but they weren't, and um, I can't really speak to why. You yeah, know. I, mean, I was thinking about that this morning a lot, and I'm thinking it's kind of like, uh, like. Uh, France and Germany and, you know, we're sort of, they, they, they tend to lump us all in together. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, can, can France make a decision for Germany? No. And we can't. Nope. And we just can't. Well, I think that, that that's an example of, a very visible example of the diversity of the tribes. I mean, we have very complex governments. We all have our own decision-making processes, agendas, approaches. Um, we don't always agree with each other, you know, people like you, you, you see this in the gaming stuff a lot. It's like, Hey, you guys go in a room and, uh, come out and tell us what you all agree on. It's like, well, you know, I don't think we, we don't all have the same needs and we don't all have the same, uh, ideas and approaches. And, but on these, what, what, what I think is really neat about this issue is that it's really found, it's really based on core cultural values of Wabanaki people. It's based on our rights 
and customs and practices and environment and uh, has nothing to do with economics. And although, you know, that's certainly an example of the inequities that have been happening, but the, um, but getting to this place was really about fisheries. It was really about our water. It was really about um, our people. And, and that's, uh, that's really gratifying because I think we're doing all this for the right reasons. Yeah, I, I do too. And I, it's one of those, uh, it's one of those times, you know, and I, I keep thinking that we actually get sort of um, categorized or labeled and sometimes we take those on ourselves. We look at ourselves the same way. It's like, you know, we looked at, where's your, where's your uh, Indian costumes or your regalia? Why aren't you in those? And it's got to be authentic and you have to be authentic. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you're stuck four or 500 years back in history. Well, that's the thing that we're really fighting against all the time is where, um, and I'll tell you another story about a Senate visit last week, but we're always fighting against that, a people frozen in time, right? It's like the, we're, we're looked at so historically, and you see it around the mascot debate. You see it around, you know, the place name debate, the offensive place name debate, around a lot of things, you know, like it's okay to use the term redskin because, you know, who's here to be offended, right? It's like it's an invisible people a lot of times, and um, but becoming more and more visible because of the, just the overwhelming um, enhancement of Indian people through education and, and, you know, being lawyers and doctors and sitting on in courts and uh, benches and um, all of that. So, so it's getting better, but, you know, I, I, I was at a visit last week and uh, I was sitting there with our lobbyist and, and the staffer walked in. She's like, where's the chief? You know, <laughs> and the, the lobbyist goes right here. Oh, and she put her hands up around her head like I thought you would. I said, "Have a headdress on," and she she knew right then. She's mm-hmm. like, "Yeah," uh, but that's exactly what she meant, right? Sure. And so people see us um, not as participants in modern day society, but as these historical figures that um, they have these stereotypical thoughts about, and so. Um, not bad people, and she was not, certainly not a bad person. She just, uh, it's just something we're constantly having to educate on. So, Yeah, but it's also something that, you know, we walk a fine line on um, because we we kind of see ourselves in, in that respect too. And, you know, we have to be very careful not to not to get caught back there 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... It, we live in today. We have to meet, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear you. I the mean, challenges of, of, of present day. Because, um, you know, look, our history is critically important. It tells us who we are, um, our practices, our culture, all of that um, is what makes us different and, and um, indistinct. And it's, it's critically important those things are in place so we lose our identity. Practical reality is we're in a coexistent modern day society where economics is important. You know, things like healthcare we have to worry about. Um, getting back to subsistence diets, a whole host of um, things that we work on today take place in 
decision-making bodies. They take place in courts. They take place, you know, so we have to um, focus on our past in terms of understanding who we are today. Um, make sure that our children's children's children always understand that and always are taught that. And at the same time, have faced the reality that modern day tools, modern day approaches, all of that is what's going to make us successful. You know, our history is going to give us the strength to do that. But it's, um, it's something you're right. I mean, we have to make sure that uh, we're focusing on the reality of things that make us um, make us improve every day. Right. So, now a while back, um, what was it? There was a, I had a, a, a show on, um, well, the popular subject in the state of Maine is racism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had a show on that a while back, and, uh, and, and it all had to do with uh, what was going on in the Senate. And, uh, you know... I do think that the core of tribal issues with state government, the very core, goes back to uh, racism. Yeah, you know, I, I think institutionally it's ingrained there. And it's ingrained, and I'm, you know, I'm always very careful to not throw that word around, but I think that um, the reality is whether an individual in that system is or is not the r- racism in terms of the approach of the institution is just very prevalent and it's very old in its way of thinking. So, um, but it's going to take the political stomach of individuals of human beings that are there today to say, um, we don't want our state to be looked at this way and we're not going to approach our Indian tribes. I don't care what the Settlement Act says that we can argue about or um, how we feel about this. Let's just get to a place of right and wrong and um, and figure out how we can communicate together. Because if you participate in a system, and it's just like we were talking about around the Senate senator's comments there, um, you know, if you do nothing, you're just participating in it. And so, um, again, extremely good people there, but somebody has to take that bull by the horns and say, we need systematic change here, and um, or that institution will continue to be very oppressive and very racist towards its approach. Yeah, absolutely, and, you know, we got to just stop talking about it and actually do something mm-hmm. about it because, you know, the people within those institutions, they don't see it. Mm-hmm. They think they're being fair. And they're being colorblind, and you know they're just they're just creating equal policy with no special rights. And what you see a lot of is, well, it's not me. You know, I'm I'm always on the right side of your issues, and you know, and well, it's not me. And so the, um, but you're right. I mean, when and what's really hard, I think, you know, to invoke change there is that, you know the power and control that comes with um, that that kind of approach that they have. So um, I get, think they get hungry and thirsty for that and, um, and, when, and don't want to let that go, and that clouds everything else. But I think, you know, we have, we have these 
policy research centers in the state, and uh, and that's what they do. I mean, they they research issues, and I'll I'll bet you um, that none of them is researching the race issue in the state of Maine. No, I mean because see. It, in the state of Maine, too, you have such a small percentage of the population that's uh, people of color. And so it doesn't have the political impact it has in urban areas outside the state. So I think until, again, people get into a mindset of wanting to be on the right side of these issues, um, I'm not so sure that the political power is there to push them in that direction. Well, the political will. I well, mean, that too. When you look at what's happening, what's happened in the state in the past year, I mean, you talk about the Raceburg, the tip of the Raceburg, it's come out in so many different ways, mm-hmm. you know? And and it has, and, and I think that um, when you look at, um, you know, I think somebody said it best when I was in, I was meeting with the Department of Justice last week and some others, and and I forget who said it, but they said kind of, you know, they've never, when is, is Maine going to kind of evolve into this century, right? And like, um, and, you know, it's too bad because we love this state. We love the people here. We love, you know, it's our homeland. And so for this state to be looked at as one of the ugliest states in tribal state relations is really, really disappointing. Yeah, and not only that, but I, I've, you know, been researching this uh, racism thing, and uh, on the internet there are comments like from people just in general that come here to visit, and they, and they, and they're saying, it's the most racist place I've ever been, <laughs> and you know, and I'm thinking, wow, and people from outside come here and and feel that that's that's pretty bad, so you know, it's probably time that we as a state figure out how to address that situation. Yeah, and I think we could start by, you know, demanding from our leaders that um, we promote an attitude that's productive in that area, that uh, promotes diversity, that uh, respects cultures, and that uh, and understands that that's a huge piece of the face of the state, and uh, we don't ever want to lose it. Yeah, and they've and they got to understand exactly what racism is. A lot of people don't understand it. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a simple definition. So it's, 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 it's a diverse sort of definition, understanding for different things. So we, we certainly need to be educated in that, mm-hmm. in that area. Absolutely, and I, I do believe that 99% of Maine people are good people, I think, the institutions, by and large, um, have a real problem in this area. I agree, and let's let's hope that within the next uh, the next year or so, that uh, you know we can find a way to educate everybody, and, and and particularly you know places like the state legislature and people that create policy and and are in the are in power positions in the state. So, any last thoughts? No, just that uh, I appreciate you having me again, and um, these issues are obviously extremely important to our tribe, and um, I'm just really proud of the work we're doing, and, you know, we're, we're making real tremendous amount of progress with our federal partners. We're 
We're spending a lot of time there. My understanding, Pastor McQuaddy is there this week. Um, right. We were there last week where we continue to go and educate and talk to people, and uh, and we're building allies all the time through some very, very bright tribal members as well, grassroots efforts and a lot of organizational partnerships. And um, so I feel like we're getting to a really good place. And uh, and again, we'll we'll continue to build the Penobscot Nation and fo- put our focus there and energy and when the state uh, comes around, you know, we'll be there to have a discussion. Yeah. And I also understand there's a there's Native American embassy in D.C. There is, yep. And National Congress of American Indians, we have an embassy of nations there, and uh, it's a great place to collaborate with other tribes. Great. Maybe hopefully we'll get, get an office there at some point. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we can afford that. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for joining us today. Kirk, You're welcome. Appreciate it. Uh, you've been listening to WERU Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donald Loring. Uh, I want to thank my guest, uh, Chief Francis from the Penobscot Nation. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles, uh, from his CD Dreamwalk. And um, our engineer was Amy Brown. See you again next month for another Wabanaki Windows.